Joining us, glad to have you back once again. It is the first episode of 2017, and it's good to be going again. The holidays were a nice break. This, as I told you in the solo episode, uh, not always my favorite time of year, but uh, you know what? It's a different change of pace. It's nice to wind the year down. It's nice to have that fresh start. It's nice to get going again. And as I think about the podcast going forward, and as I think about entering what will be my third year coming up in March will be the three year anniversary of this show, which I've done almost weekly and I've had people from all walks of life, but I've never had an episode like the one you're about to listen to this week. My guest is Patrick Sheridan and Patrick Sheridan. I was introduced to through Brad Hag, who's been on this show. I think more times than anyone else. Uh, I think he's been on three times. And he's one of the inspirations of this show. He designed the logo for this show. He's just a tremendous artist and one of my best friends and someone I adore on every level. He suggested Patrick Sheridan to me. And when he initially pitched it, it was months ago. And he said, you should talk to Patrick. Patrick uh, is the creator of the Emerging Filmmakers Project. He runs that. He does uh, acting classes. He does punch-up on scripts. He, he does all these interesting creative things. And, you know, he's someone who's in Brad's orbit who has had a positive effect on Brad's life and on Brad's art. And I thought, that's great. I'd love to talk to him. And as I started reaching out to him and worked to set this up, came to find out that Patrick was battling pancreatic cancer. And he was very much in the throes of treatment, trying to overcome it. And I didn't understand the extent to which he was fighting. And it wasn't until we finally sat down. And we sat down on December 22nd. I I went to his new studio, uh, his new place where he does acting classes. And as we chatted, he said, you know, all these things that we wanted to talk about. I haven't really been involved in them. Uh, I understand if you don't want to talk about this on the podcast because I don't have a lot of work, a lot of recent work that I can share with you. My main job right now is fighting pancreatic cancer. I know he was giving me an out if I didn't want to talk about that, but if he wanted to talk about it, I wanted to talk about it because that is a full-time job. You were trying to beat cancer. You were trying to eradicate something that is attempting to kill you from within. I haven't, fortunately, I haven't had a lot of experience in interacting with people who have fought cancer. And while sort of abstractly you appreciate what they're going through and you go, man, that must be tough. That's got to be really hard. You really have no idea unless you've been through it firsthand. And this is as close to firsthand as I have gotten. And I cannot tell you how appreciative I was of Patrick for sharing this story with me. Because I'll be honest with you, this is the rawest episode I've ever aired. I mean, this is humanity at its most base, at its most core, at its most naked. 
This is someone willing to bear their soul and talk about fighting for their life and going through the, the most unbelievably dehumanizing, most excruciating sounding process. And Patrick goes into a fair amount of detail about what this is like and, you know, navigating the fucked up bureaucracy of our healthcare system and just fighting for his life and overcoming obstacles, which you wouldn't think you'd have to overcome. And I'll tell you, this episode runs like an hour and five minutes, something like that. And after I talked to Patrick, I was both completely energized and totally, I was like a raw nerve. And I'll be honest, after talking to Patrick and listening to this episode and listening to it back in prep for putting it out there into the world, it fucked me up. I, I'm, I'm not really shy about dropping the F-bomb here because for a couple of reasons. One, what you're about to hear is about as mature a theme as it gets. I mean, we're going to be talking about fighting fucking cancer. And secondly, nothing I say here will compare to the incredible string of F-bombs that Patrick drops near the end of this episode. It is single-handedly the most profane sentence ever uttered on this show. It's glorious. It's amazing. It's life-affirming. And I'm not going to spoil it for you, but stay tuned because the end of this episode just, it ends and it's spectacular. Now, that's another way of me telling you that this episode is not all doom and gloom. It's not sadness. You know, it is very intense. It is very raw. But there are moments of levity here. There are lessons to be had. Patrick talks about how this is not only a physical journey. This is not a physical battle solely. This is also a spiritual journey. He tells me that you can't just fight the physical battle of cancer. You have to fix what's wrong with your soul. And it's moments like that that touch me to my core. It's the very reason I do this show. I can think of no better reason for putting something like this out into the world than to build empathy for our fellow man, for our fellow human. And the fact that Patrick was willing to sit down with me on December 22nd, he told me at the beginning of this episode, the doctors, when he was diagnosed, when he was finally, when they figured out that he had pancreatic cancer, that he had six months to live. Well, that was December 24th of 2016. So two days before his, what he called his expiration date, he's talking with me and he's sharing his journey. And gratefully and thankfully, he was in much better health. So I bring this episode to you to kick off the new year. I know there are people who were very pessimistic about 2016. And there are people who are fearful about what's going on in 2017. Our culture is very divided. And the goal of this show, if nothing else, is just to help us build empathy. And if we can look at each other and look to help each other. I, I'm sounding a little bit Pollyanna-ish here. I don't give a shit. That doesn't matter to me. Because if, if you can take something like this, take the journey that Patrick's been on, improve your life, improve the way that you interact with your fellow people on this planet. We're all only here for a short time. And God damn it, let's do our best to make the most of it and make the most of each other and help each other and understand each other better. Because God damn it, we're all trying our hardest, but we're not connecting in the way that we need to. And that's what I take away from this episode. So I cannot thank you enough 
Patrick Sheridan for sharing this journey with me and for sharing it with anyone who is listening to it right now. Because as you said, chances are excellent that you're going to go through this. If not personally, then with someone you know, or you're going to end up a caregiver. And I've gone on long enough. This is a great episode. This might be my favorite episode. This was also the hardest episode I ever had to put together. So, I mean, what else can I tell you? I, I'm not going to plug anything here at the front end. Who gives a shit about the plugs? We'll do that later. No, you know what? Fuck that. I'm going to plug one thing. On the John of All Trades website, on the companion blog piece to this show, is a link to two things. One is the Emerging Filmmakers Project. And that is something that Patrick has worked very hard on. He's very proud of. Go to that. Support that. Check out local art. Check out local filmmakers. Check out indie film. It's awesome. He's doing great work. He's emboldening art. He, he, there's a quote in this episode where he says, uh, art is too important to be left to the professionals. That's one. Two, there is a GoFundMe page for Patrick. He has very expensive treatments. He has very difficult treatments. So go there, support him, flip him a few bucks. Whatever you can share, whatever you can provide, whatever you can spare, kick it to Patrick. If for no other reason than he was good enough to share this with you, pay it back a little bit. I've given some money to Patrick. You can go to his GoFundMe page. You'll find my name there. And I'm, I'm proud to have given him some money because I want him in this world, sharing this journey, emboldening young artists, and continuing the work that he does. And I tell you this. I will talk to him at the end of 2017 because I believe he will fight this, he will beat it, and he will create art. And I want to talk about that art. So by the end of 2017, he will be on the show again. I guarantee you that. We're going to start it with Patrick Sheridan, and by the end, we're going to have Patrick Sheridan again. But let's listen to this week's episode first. It's episode 119 of the John of All Trades podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading it. And he is fighting pancreatic cancer. He's a brilliant artist, but this is his primary job. This is his story. It starts right now. It was kind of weird that um, a whole bunch of things kind of came together to, you know, the universe telling me to, <laughs> to get this space. Yeah. I had been, a couple of friends described my professional... Uh, career as an acting coach is kind of couch surfing that I just kept having to go to different places, right? you know, subletting that kind of stuff. Right. And this vagrant sort of lifestyle. Absolutely. And I originally started doing classes out of my house, which is not too far from here, but kind of outgrew that. Right. And really the classes started as a part-time thing. It wasn't really something I thought I was going to be doing a lot of. Just what? people asked me to... You know, they would see my short films and go, why are your actors so good? And, <laughs> right. I, and I said, I don't let people act. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, I'm not let, they don't, I don't allow them to act. I don't want people acting. I want people to be. I want them to be themselves. I want them to be true to the moment. And they said, well, can you show me how to do that? And I was like, eh, not really, but okay. And then right. one class kind of volunteer kind of kept growing and growing and it was always something kind of part-time. Sure. And then, uh, I don't know, about two years ago, I thought, you know, I got five of these classes going. I probably ought to start thinking about treating it like a business. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, and then about, oh, a year, a little more than a year ago, September, I was subletting space 
I got kicked out of it because the um, guy I was subletting from started to act really inappropriate to the, a few of the parents of my kid actors. Okay. When I called him on it, he basically kicked me out. Oh, sounds like a super guy. Yes, yeah, super guy. <laughs> so I was uh, back to you know my house. I, I do a lot of my classes at the Bug Theater, which yeah, is the- where the Emergent Filmmakers Project is. They've been fantastic. And uh, the VFW on Santa Fe okay. let me do a class there. And um, and then I got sick. Right. How long ago was that? Uh, the I started to have symptoms really about a year ago. Okay. Serious symptoms in late January, February. And what, if you don't mind sharing, what kind of symptoms? Like, you know, it was um, fatigue, weight loss, and chronic nonstop diarrhea. Oh my God! The 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 nastiest stuff that you can't believe your body can produce. Right. And just at all times, it was it was constant. Jeez. Um, and and like nothing you did was, but was I mean mitigating the problem at all? No, nothing uh, helped. Jeez. And uh, it started to really interfere with everything, as you can imagine. Oh, certainly. Because um, my primary responsibility is a stay-at-home dad. For sure. You know, and it was starting to even impact that. How old are your kids? A 10 and 12. Okay. Uh, one just turned 13, 10 and 13. Okay. Um, and uh, so I went to all sorts of doctors and nobody could really figure it out. And actually one of my natural paths, um, a holistic doctor, my first meeting with him said, it's your pancreas. Huh. But the Western doctors kind of refused to consider that, you know, a guy as healthy as me sure. could have a pancreas issue. So you were otherwise healthy, right? Very oh. healthy. I, I lived well, like don't smoke, like didn't smoke, uh, not a whole lot of drugs. Then the, the, the few recreational things I did a long time ago. Right. Of course. I ate pretty well, a little more sugar than one should eat probably, but this <laughs> well, is America who can't. <laughs> yeah, really? Um, so, but I mean, fairly like within that meaty part of the curve in terms yes, of Americans, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. If you line me up with the typical 54 year old, 53 year old, you go, that's a healthy guy. Right, sure. You know, so, uh, yeah, when I got my colonoscopy, not to gross people out, but the, the doctor said, you know, your colonoscopy is great for a 45-year-old. And I said, I'm 54. And he goes, oh, I have that backwards. So <laughs> He's um, like, so it's spectacular. So it's spectacular. You should be very proud of yourself. And he was like, why are you disappointed in that? And I said, well, if it's not in the colon, it means it's something more serious. So. Yeah. So yeah, so the the symptoms really kicked up in earnest in late January, February of this year, and it wasn't until June that uh, I finally got a diagnosis, and it was uh, inoperable terminal pancreatic cancer. Holy shit! And on June twenty fourth, I met with an oncologist, and he told me I had six months to live. So. December 24th is my expiration date, apparently. Uh, and we're recording this on December 22nd? Yes, yes. So, uh, Jesus Christ, Patrick. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm spending my last two days with you. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> um, fortunately, um, my health is rebounding. It's, a long, it's been a long, really brutal fight. I have a caregiver uh, and sort of partner in crime, Christine McQuillan, who's doing so much of the work to keep me healthy. Yeah. Uh, diet, a lot of alternative treatments. Chemo wasn't really an option. Hmm. Um, by Western standards, pancreatic cancer 
has a 3 to 5% survival rate. Jesus. And the chemo they suggested was to shrink the tumor so it could be removed surgically. Huh. There was less than a 10% chance that it would shrink enough to remove. And if it did, uh, the surgery might give me 18 to 24 months. Yeah. Uh, and being sick the whole time. And I thought, I'm going to see if there's a different way. And the really difficult question, and, and I think very few people in this country when faced with cancer are even aware of this, and that is Western medicine says the only cure for cancer is chemo, radiation, and surgery. And you have to decide if you agree with that. Okay. And if you don't, then what? And I didn't think that that was sufficient. Well, given the numbers and, and given that it's your life, right? I mean, the stakes are as high as they possibly can be. Yeah. And when you look at those numbers, you go, okay, those numbers are shit. And if I need to go outside this sort of lane of thinking, then I, I don't think anyone could fault you for at least exploring that. Yeah. And, yeah. So, and so what did you find? Well, we found that there were a lot of things being done outside of the country that are have a much higher success rate. And there are a lot of things being done inside the U.S. that are very effective against all types of cancer. Of course, they're not allowed to call them cancer fighting because <laughs> they'll get arrested. And, and what's right. been very interesting is that some of the treatments that I've had that have been very successful can't call them cancer treatments. Right. And some of the medicine— what, uh, what, what do you call them? Alternative, you know the 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 general term that you hear for them is immunity boosters. Okay, you know the the idea of holistic or alternative medicine, really Eastern medicine, is that you build up your immune system well enough that it can fight. Okay. Now, in addition to that, you try and find things that actually have anti-cancer properties. Okay. You know, and we're fortunate in, in Colorado that that cannabis is available to us, CBD oil. And HTC have been part of the regimen. But, yeah, you have to kind of call it um, right. You know, immune boosting. Or One of the things that I'm using is curcumin, which is an extract of uh, turmeric. Uh -huh. uh, it's used all over the world for fighting cancer. In the United States, its main property is it's anti-inflammatory. Okay. So you have to say that it's anti-inflammatory that's where you're going, but some of the, so it's almost like you have to wink and nod it, it. This is like when you go in a catalog and you're, you want to buy just a vibrator and yeah. they call it like a personal massager. Right. right? You know, it's, it's exactly right. And we've had to meet people in parking lots to get things from them. Because, Jesus Christ, man. You know, and uh, a medicine that I'm using called Genistein, which has been very effective. We actually did a blood test that we had to send to Europe to get done and it took my tumor, it sort of grew my tumor, put it up against all sorts of chemo and natural remedies. And mm. they send you a report on which ones are most effective against. And genistein was one of those. But you can't get it in Colorado. Okay. Uh, or you can't get this particular blend. You can get it in Texas, but they can't ship across state lines. So I had to have a friend go down then and pick it up for and me. Drive? And she... Oh, fortunately, she's a flight attendant, so okay. she flew down there and grabbed it, and you know she was terrified she was going to get arrested at the you know yeah sure baggage claim or whatever. So it's 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 kind of crazy. So some I, of the things that you have to go through just to get stuff that seems to be working. Well, and this is clearly outside the purview of our U.S. insurance system, yes. our healthcare, obviously. 
that you're having to cobble this together almost, I, you know, I wouldn't call it black market, but almost like gray market. Cause, because, I mean, the things that you're referring to are clearly not illegal, right? Like not, not just illegal on their face, you know? Right. You're, you're not, you're not buying black tar heroin or something. Right. But, you know, through, they're possibly unlawful. Well, some of them, if you talk to them about uh, it being a, a cure or a treatment for cancer, people do get in trouble. Okay. So, for example, one of the medicines that we're using was developed about 10 years ago. They haven't raised the funds yet for clinical trials yet in the United States, but it's used elsewhere. We found out about it through um, somebody we know who went to a clinic in New Mexico. Okay. He came back and said that this particular medicine was one of the things that cured him of his cancer. So we did more research, and as we learned about it, it was just one of those things that you looked at and you go, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That uh, that I understand. It's called PNC-27. That makes sense, uh, uh, the way it attacks cancer cells. And then it was we we went on this mission to figure out how to get it because he was getting it here as part of his post clinic visit. So that yeah. meant that it was possible here in Mexico. They would deliver it through IV, but here because a doctor has to be right. Uh, it, so your two choices were through a nebulizer or through suppositories. Uh huh. And we went with suppositories. Sure. Uh, so do that twice a day and. It's uh, it's it's kind of funny in the sense that uh, for a long time I had diarrhea about once every hour, and you're supposed to try and keep the suppository in there for two hours. So oh no, I'm not a big Common Core math guy, but that <laughs> doesn't seem to equate. So it's uh, boy, that's a challenge. It has been a challenge, but recently the people who have the supply of PNC were raided by the FDA, and all of their huh. products were confiscated. So we're not sure we'll have medicine. In January, so it's it's been kind of interesting to see how all of this has been playing out as far as the, the cancer world goes. But and how are you cobbling this info together? You know, it's um, Christine knows a lot about alternative medicine and, and healthcare. We have several doctors, Western doctors, Eastern doctors natural paths, those type of things, all kind of working together. Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time on the Internet trying to find information, and then whenever possible, we try and track down people that are actually using it, survivors. Yeah, uh, we sure. don't just go based on the first couple links you find. Right. We find stuff that sounds promising. We look more into it. We try and find research. And a lot of the research has been done in the United States, but they just – you know they can't say it's a cancer thing until it goes through the, the protocol right. and the, and, and through the, the, and FDA. the testing is so expensive it's yeah. millions and millions well and of it's years isn't it years I mean, years years yeah i mean i know very little about that process um there was one client that my wife used to work for the social media marketing company and there was one client that has it's like ionized water and they basically can't say what it does and there's there's aloe associated with it that I burned my hand on like a uh, like a griddler that we have. Mm -hmm. I put some of their water, I diluted it with water, and I put my my finger in it. I didn't have a burn the next day. Yeah, it was the crate like, and I mean, it sounds like I'm selling snake oil here, 
right? Right. Because anytime you're sort of outside of that box, that FDA box, people think you're nuts, right? Oh, yeah. Or, or people think, uh, you know, it's this phony, like, charlatan thing. But I, f- I felt this work on me. And so hearing you describe this and having to become a detective, you know, become a, a, a bloodhound in terms of just basically fighting for your own life, that's both incredibly illuminating and oddly dispiriting when you start thinking about the way we treat healthcare in this country. Oh, yeah, especially when it comes to the biggies like cancer and, and heart disease. Yeah. Um, you know, just even trying to get information from the people who are real believers and practitioners of this stuff can be very difficult because they have to watch what they say. Yeah, uh, they're going to get persecuted. Yeah, because if if I was a, a you know, if somebody was a plant or an undercover agent or something, they got to be careful what they say. Yeah. So we have done a lot of research. We had to do a lot of education on cancer. You know, what causes cancer, what grows cancer, what keeps it alive, what what tends to uh impact it and then tried to cobble together uh, regimens to, to match it. And, you know, the thing about it is it's ex- it's expensive. Yeah. And it's not covered. Yeah. Um, the um, Eileen Augusta, who also is part of the Emergent Filmmakers Project, put up a GoFundMe. And she's delightful. Okay. She's, she's, she's amazing. Um, and, and an incredibly talented artist. Yes. And uh, one of my favorite people in the world. And that GoFundMe and other fundraisers raised a lot of money for me and that's what's allowed me to do this it's what's kept me alive wow and um as we go into the new year we we have to kind of be a little more specific as to what we're doing because the money's you know we're gonna have to try and raise some more yeah but we've spent probably fifty thousand dollars up to this point my god patrick uh, none of that was covered by health insurance and my health insurance bills, not including any chemo, just really imaging, has probably been about seventy thousand. Uh, so chemo would have been another hundred grand, and we're fighting with the insurance company because they don't want to cover my endoscopy and biopsy. Why? Uh, it's a, it's well, it's a forty thousand dollar bill for one. Okay. And two, they're telling me that uh, it was out of my network. It didn't have the right referral or something like that. Oh, for fuck's sake. Like, okay, so some technicality. Yeah. And so it was really one of those things where two days after the diagnosis and you're in panic mode, you know, the doctor that uh, ordered the CAT scan sends you to a place and you hand them your insurance info and they say, great, you're all set. (laughs) And they do this procedure and then two months later they say, that's not covered. Yeah. So... Here's a bill for forty grand. It's like, yeah, that's uh, you, thanks a pant. Yeah, you're gonna get that. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, you know, it's been a, it's it's one of the things that I think people don't understand about alternative treatments is is people tend to think that it's somehow easy, and it's not. Well, it's, yeah, that it's what like you know. It's getting, like going to a spa. Yeah, getting know? some massages, smoking some weed. Right? Yeah. And there is some of that. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but, um, you know, for a while I was spending probably 16 of 24 hours a day on the bathroom floor. Ugh. You know, uh, it's just brutal. Yeah. Uh, it's just a brutal, brutal disease and detoxing and getting, you know, trying to kill off the tumor. 
it's just a brutal, horrible experience. Well, the- and, and unfortunately, because of the poisons in our food and our air and water, you know, the number of people who are going to get cancer is just staggering. You know, it's like one in two men or something like that are going to get cancer in their lifetime. Good Lord. And the other thing that I found has really been interesting about being sick, and I'm working on a documentary that kind of addresses this, is that as a society, we don't really want to see sick people. We we don't like sick people being out and about. Okay. And I, you know, I, I'm not shy about my condition. Um, I'm not shy much at all. <laughs> period. Period. Right? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you were, when, when we were setting this up, you know, this was, this was not my expectation of what we were going to talk yeah. about, which, but I'm glad that we are because this is important. This is, this is a, a story that needs to be told this, like this insight into what you're going through. Yeah. Everyone at some point is probably going to experience this, if not themselves, with someone that they know, someone that they care about, someone that they are related to. Your chances of getting cancer or being a caregiver to somebody with cancer or heart disease right, is pretty high. Sure. It's pretty high. My mother died of uh, breast cancer. Uh, my sister was recently diagnosed with a cancer. My grandmother had bowel cancer. Yeah. She beat it, which was good. Yeah, but it's just, it's going to touch so many people. And I think one of the best things that we did was once you're diagnosed, there is such a rush to get you into chemo. Mm-hmm. Um, is we said, n- no, we're going to take a little time and figure out what our game plan was. And even though the uh, diagnosis was, you know, you have six months to live, that week or two weeks that we took to really figure out what we wanted to do, I think made a huge difference. Yeah. Chemo is a brutal thing as well, and well, chemo on a fundamental level basically is giving you enough poison right that kills the cancer or the tumor without killing you. Is that essentially what it boils down to well it it pretty much kills and destroys everything inside of you, okay, and a lot of people don't survive the chemo right and the bigger issue, the way we understand the way chemo works on tumors, is that a tumor is is really a mutation of a stem cell, right? So then there's two types of cells. You've got the, the, the stem cell and then the daughter cells, which is what the bulk of a tumor is. Chemo will kill all of that pretty efficiently, but it also will damage the stem cell. Okay. And so that stem cell then is a damaged cell and... Many years later, when it wants to replicate again, it's often because it's damaged, is going to create new cancer and often a more aggressive form, which is why so many people healthy, healthy, and then they get a recurrence, but a more aggressive form. And the the recurrence of cancer post-chemo is so high um, for many types of cancers, that just didn't feel like a good option for me. I mean, first of all, the, the, the... the possible success rate was so low. Right, yeah. And then the genuine possibility of a recurrence in two to five years um, just seemed like something I didn't want to really have a part of. And so it is a risk. I mean, the, you know, the, the doctors that you meet, are, were, they were all the smartest guys that you knew growing up. Sure. And they sure sound like they know what they're talking about. And they're very smart and they're well-intentioned. But when I talk to... And I've talked to more than one oncologist, several. And when I talk about these other things, 
you know, like vitamin C or curcumin and many of the other things that we're doing, they have very little understanding or even knowledge about it. It's just not something that they uh, is part of their world. Right. And in the United States, there's no incentive for them to look at those things. So, so for me, uh, my tumor is all indications are my tumor is smaller and less impactful on me. It's great. Uh, my numbers uh, all indicate that I'm a healthy guy. Good. There's something called albumin, which I had no idea what that was before all of this happened. I don't know what that is either. It's some kind of a liver protein. Okay. And my number had gotten so low that I was approaching that point of no return. Oh. And it has since rebounded to the normal range, and I'm told that's probably the most positive sign. That's great. My I- weight uh, my weight had gotten as low as 118. Oh, my gosh. Uh, which is scary skinny. Well, and you're you're what like five ten, five eleven, six foot, six foot, and one eighteen was uh, pretty Yikes. skinny. Yeah. Um, what? So, like, what was your normal walking around rate pre cancer? About one ninety. One ninety. Oh my god. Yeah. So I, I'm about one forty now. So okay. uh, starting to feel like a little fatty. <laughs> but what? That's good though. Yeah, right? that's good. So all indicate, and I feel better. I'm having much. Far more stretches where I feel good. I wake up most mornings not feeling sick. Wow. You know, I still have issues with diarrhea, but it's not as bad as it was uh, for a long time. The pain is much less than it was. So everything feels like it's rebounding. The tumor is in a bad place, and it's a bad tumor, so that could all change. Sure. But what I was mentioning earlier was, you know, when I'd go out in public— People just don't want to see sick people. Uh, we went up to Steamboat Springs uh, this summer when my weight was in the 120s. And you get used to whatever your reality is. You know, and, and my yeah, reality, you find new equilibrium. You do. You know, your, your new normal. You know, the, yeah. the, the, but the reactions that you would get from people as you were walking to get into the pool, it really ran a... a, a an incredible gamut. Some people are very sympathetic and you could tell that they had had some experience with it. And other people treated you like you're ruining their vacation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, like, Hey, you don't belong here. I was at a breakfast place, uh, three or four months ago and a few tables over, I heard a woman say, well, he's ruining my appetite. You know, Jesus. So, so we get those kind of things. And but this, then, and this is some like average, I'm, I'm, Guessing like some average middle class, middle aged woman, right? Yeah, just yeah, who, who you wouldn't expect, like you, you wouldn't necessarily expect that kind of just blithe ugliness, right? Right, right. What's also been funny is if I'm if I'm walking by myself, people will go out of their way to avoid me. Hmm. Uh, if I'm walking with somebody, they assume that's you know a caregiver or something, and right? A little bit more sympathetic, and so it's really just interesting to me that. As many people will be affected by this, nobody thinks it's going to affect them. Yeah. And so I've tried to be out front a little more on these kind of things that, hey, this is, you know, if I can get pancreatic cancer, fuck, anybody can get anything, you yeah. know. And, and one of the reasons it took so long to get it diagnosed was there was a genuine, genuine sort of denial that I was even a candidate for it. You know, they wanted mm-hmm. to... Yeah. Look at, you know, IBS or Crohn's disease or, you know, or, or parasites. And I tested positive for parasites on more than one occasion. Mm. Um, like, you know, where would I get a parasite? Who knows? 
so yeah, you know, uh, it's going to affect so many people and, and people just aren't ready for it. Well, you mentioned, I mean, pancreatic cancer, is there, is there any correlation with like diabetes or a lot of people with diabetes will get pancreatic cancer. Okay. It's really associated with people who are overweight, have been heavy smokers, heavy drinkers their whole life. Okay. But all types of cancers are becoming uh, more frequent with people who don't sort of match models. Right. And uh, so so for me, you know, I was 53 when I was diagnosed, which means this tumor was in me for several years. Really? It's just the way cancers work. Um, and no blood test. Normal blood tests revealed anything, but uh, there's a couple of specialized blood tests that once they ran those, it was clear that there was a major issue. It was pretty obvious, yeah. Yeah. But um, it's, you know, it's a daily struggle. It's it's humiliating on so many levels, the stuff that happens to your body that you go through. It's got to feel very dehumanizing. It's incredibly. It's incredibly. You, you know, you... I, I like to say that you can get well or you can have your dignity, but you can't have both. <laughs> and, and you really can't because, you know, cancer like this, your body just betrays you constantly. Wow. And it doesn't care if you're in public or in private. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it, it wages war on your soul. It, it turns you into a person you can't believe that you are. Um, in what way? You know, you there's a couple ways that it does. Is it is it removes you as a positive influence on almost anybody's life. My ability to take care of my kids is gone. Right. You know, it's just slowly kind of coming back. Yeah. Um it um there was a stretch of about 6 weeks where I could not sleep. Yeah. And that just made me uh, just a surly asshole. Sure. And then uh, I had pain issues that were unbelievable and made the mistake of getting on one of the oxys. And within a week, I could feel myself being coming addicted to it. Oh, wow. And it created incredible constipation, which you would think is a relief after months and months of <laughs> diarrhea. But it's not. It's incredibly painful. And my body swelled up and it turned me – I became so angry that I lashed out at all these people trying to help me. Yeah. Uh, and it took about six weeks to really wean myself off of not feeling that addictive pull of it anymore. So yeah. I, I totally understand how people get addicted to those things. So uh, in, in and THC helped that. Sure. And then we had to dial down on that to get back. So – one of the things that's been difficult is we really have no good pain relief regimen that's not causing damage. So when it's painful, it's it's painful. So in addition to dealing with basically everything with the cancer, you were also essentially fighting addiction at the same time. It snuck in there, yeah. Good Lord. Unfortunately, yeah. I was only on the Oxy for a very short period of time. Yeah. But, uh, it caused a huge, you know, it was, by the time we got off of that and, you know, it was a six to seven, eight week process and a lot of weight got lost during that time. There were times where you just don't want to eat. Um, so the other thing that's really 
interesting about it is, you know, no day is the same. You you, mm. you can't predict anything, you know. So even trying to plan something like this a couple of days out, it's like, God, I hope I have a good hour or two, you know. Yeah. And, and it's always up in the air. But I also say this, that um, – Well, I, first of all, I can't – I just before you say that, I can't tell you how – incredibly grateful i am for the time and for the insight just before we even go any further oh Be, because to share. i mean this is yeah like i said someone you know if you were listening to this right now someone you know is either fighting this or has fought this or will fight it mm-hmm. and so increasing our understanding increasing our empathy maybe maybe after listening to this show you don't look at a sick person like they're a fucking leper. Right. And that there's there's value in that, Patrick. So yeah, I hope so. And and if you know for those people, if they somehow escape, you know, that cancer directly, the, the chances of them having to become somebody's caregiver is quite high. Sure. And what I find really interesting is that, you know, when people are diagnosed with this, you know, there's a general announcement, this is what's happening. And then those people disappear for a while. Hmm. You know? And so oftentimes the outcome is not good, you know, and we act as if, well, everybody did everything they could. And it's like, you know, overall cancer survival rates are still around 40%, Yeah. you know, and the costs that we're pouring into this and the protocols that we're using are, st- are just so outdated. And I just think at some point down the road, we're going to look back at this time and go, it's just barbaric what we do cancer my own mother when she got breast cancer you know she was stage four and uh they talked her and doing the chemo that they said it would give her an an additional year of quality life and uh, there was nothing quality about that last year Mm -hmm. um just brutal just brutal so you know prevention and cure i think we're a lot further away Mm. because we're so stuck on this chemo radiation surgery track and until we start to really look at what's causing this, primarily the incredible amounts of poisons that are put into our food, the processed food, the amount of sugar that we consume, it's just, it's just killing us. And like, like we were talking about, so many people are going to be impacted by this. And if we still treat it as though it's, so, it's an isolated thing that it happens to other people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you hear all the time, well, this person has cancer and they, they disappear. Uh, and sometimes, you know, they die from it. Sometimes they recover. But uh, it's like out of sight, out of mind. And this is the cost of what we eat in this country, the way our food is processed and manufactured. Can you be more specific about that? There are so many preservatives and chemicals in our food and variations of sugar and high fructose corn syrup. I don't have the exact numbers on me, but the amount of sugar that we ate individually 50 years ago was probably single digits in the pound per year, and it's you know it's probably grown 10, 20-fold by that. The amount of sugar that we all eat every day in this country is staggering. Okay. And the amount of additives put in food that don't have to have any testing uh, is mind-boggling. You know, if a f- food manufacturing company says, we're pretty sure that this doesn't have any harmful side effects, they can put it in our food. And and 
you know, we eat it up. And, uh, and, and they either, in your estimation, do they not know or are they being intentionally untruthful? I think they're being intentionally untruthful. I think it's very much like cigarettes were for years and years where they knew how harmful it was, but mm. they were making so much money. They had products that were addictive. I think so many of the things that are put in food are there designed there to make us crave the food. Mm. I, I think there's no doubt that these large food manufacturers are aware of the damage this is doing, but they just simply don't care. You know, I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, last November, uh, before I really started to get sick, my, I took my two sons on a road trip and we went to, um, they wanted to see the Buddy Holly Museum in Lubbock, Texas. Hmm. And as we were driving down there, we realized the UFO Museum in Roswell was not too far out of the way. So yeah. we, we kind of, you know, what the hell? We double dip. We did both of them. Kind of en route. Kind of en route. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And when we got to uh, the Buddy Holly Museum, what I found was really interesting was, uh, remember, I'm about six foot, way... My my average weight was about 190, sometimes 195, 185, right in that range. Mm -hmm. And on Buddy Holly's plane was the Big Bopper. And he had that name because he was a big guy, you know? Yeah. He was considered overweight. And what I found remarkable was that he was six foot, about 190. <laughs> and Buddy Holly was 6'1", six, 6'2", six, probably 150. Wow. You know? And so it just kind of shows you that the evolution of our body size in this country has changed so dramatically that, you know, 190, six foot 190 yeah. is considered, Hey, that guy's in pretty good shape. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so it's, it's, um, you know, we, we don't move as much, but I think it's almost entirely what we eat. Well, I mean, as someone who has, uh, gone through a weight loss journey twice and, you know, intentionally trying to lose weight, what I found was it's like 90% diet, 10% exercise. Oh, yeah. I mean, exercise is good, and you should do it because you get a lot of other benefits from exercise. Yeah. But in terms of sheer weight loss, exercise is not going to do it for you. It's almost all diet. No, and people have no idea how much sugar is in everything they eat. Like, give me, give me a for instance. Peanut butter. Right. Uh, spaghetti sauce. And I love peanut butter. Oh, yeah. So. Um, the amount of empty carbohydrates in our breads now, you know, mm. uh, these, uh, things that are made with flour that have been, you know, enriched or bleached, they have no, of the nutritional value of, of wheat anymore. It all just gets converted to sugar. So mm. the, the amount of sugar that we eat every day is just staggering. And, uh, I'm convinced it's what's killing us all, mm. but anyway, it's, it's, you know, the other thing I would I would say that has been more interesting, well, there's been nothing, there's been very little interesting about the uh, sort of the physical battle. It's It truly is a get your ass off the floor today, hmm. you know, every day. And sometimes you're more successful than not. And, you know, you might spend all day in the bathroom. You might spend all day in pain. You might spend all day, you know, just cringing. But I think what's been really interesting is that a lot of people will talk about, you know, your spirit, you know, your mindset is what's important in these kind of fights. And I believe that to a large degree. I mean, I think positive thinking is, is very powerful. 
you have to temper that with a little bit of realism as well. I mean, if you're on a plane and it's going down, uh, all the, hey, it's not going to happen isn't going to stop that. Right. But I do think that a really positive mindset that you can beat this thing is really important. And for me, there's been a spiritual journey about, you know, what does this mean for me? Am I going to, what, what's the point of surviving this if I'm going to be the same person afterwards? Yeah. You know, I, I could have had a heart attack and it been done, you know, uh, heart disease and heart attacks are common in my family. So, um, when those things happen, you know, you don't get any chance. Uh, so even at 3% uh, with the pancreatic cancer, it was like, okay, what, what am I going to do with my life differently? And so there's been this real spiritual journey to redefine what success was for me. Cause I, I always felt like I was not successful, that I hadn't achieved my goals. Uh, am I worthy of surviving this? You know, um, yeah. I've always been, it's like many men, it's difficult to ask for help, though I would give help unconditionally. If somebody asked me for something, I would give it to them without any expectation of anything in return. And so part of this, this journey has been to figure out, you know, why have I sabotaged myself so much? Why have I uh, prevented myself from being more successful? Why do I not consider the things that I've been very successful at as successful and why do I just focus on things that um, haven't gone the way I've wanted to? And, and the spiritual journey, uh, I've gone to a lot of sort of energy and spiritual healers. It's been really incredibly interesting, some of the things that have happened. Um, and one of them is I have these recurring dreams. And the first one that I had, first series of dreams, is I was in a lifeboat in the middle of the ocean mm-hmm. and i had been in this boat for a long time because i was emaciated and blistered from the sun and and from damage of being kind of wet the whole time and it was yeah. in the middle of the night and i only had enough energy to sort of lift my head up over the edge of the boat and in all directions there's no help coming and i kept thinking if i just start rowing i'll be okay but what paralyzed me then was I didn't know what direction to row. Right. And I would pass out in the boat and then wake up wherever I had fallen asleep, sometimes in a different room at the house. But I could taste the salt water. I felt the sores. And then a few nights later, I would have the next installment of that dream. Only it was later. I was more, uh, I was weaker, uh, still unsure which direction to go. Yeah. And after about four or five of these dreams, when I finally said, I've got to get my ass up and push these oars. Yeah. And when I finally did that, I woke up and I didn't have that dream anymore. And it's been replaced by other ones. And in these trance-like states, sometimes they're dreams, sometimes they're with sort of spiritual guides and healers. You know, I'm visiting with, you know, I visited with my mother's father who was the source of a lot of the lack of self-worth in our family because my my mother had the same issues. So it's been a really interesting journey spiritually and very vivid and visual. Um, I'm finding it incredibly interesting. It's almost like you have this physical cancer, but there's also something that's not right with your soul. And you can't really cure the physical cancer unless you've addressed what's 
kind of causing all those things. And it's a, it's a really shitty thing to go through, though I think I'm coming out of it as a, as a better person, mm-hmm. uh, more insightful. And one of the real lessons that I've learned is, is about gratitude. And um, I've, I've never had trouble expressing my gratitude for other people and for what people have done for me. Mm-hmm. But I've always had a tremendous amount of difficulty accepting people's gratitude. Uh, I would minimize my contribution to whatever, you know, whatever role I played in, in, in her life. Mm-hmm. And I realized that a um, couple of things. One, I was devaluing myself by doing that. I was truly not being appreciative of what I may have done for those people. And secondly, and perhaps more importantly, by diminishing it, I was not only denying them sense to truly express their gratitude, but I was minimizing their own journey. I was minimizing mm-hmm. the transformation that they had gone through. And so, you know, we, we talk about giving and then are you open to receiving? And I think for me, a lot of that had to do with gratitude, you know, gratitude out. Well, if you, if you have some, if you're somebody who has, you know, gratitude out, gratitude for those around you, for those, for things that people have done for you, if you're not open to the gratitude coming back to you, mm-hmm. you're diminishing the whole process. You're devaluing yourself. You're devaluing, um, what they're grateful for. And, uh, so that's probably been one of the biggest changes for me is that I truly understand better than I ever had the impact that I've had on so many people. That's great. You know? I mean, I, that that's an that's got to be a rewarding realization to have. It's it's a, it's uh it's humbling as hell. Yeah. You know, um you know, cuz when I first got sick, I had people who, you know, I haven't talked to in 30 years, you know, they'd call me and say that I changed their life by this conversation. I was like, "Oh, okay." You know, and yeah. and, and then, you know, with some of my the, the people I mentor and coach. And you're thinking, "Yeah, who the fuck am I?" You know, like right. you're going, hey, that that's not, thank you for telling me that that's nice but you right. you you sort of dismiss it almost, and you, right? you know you think well you would have figured that out eventually and <laughs> and you just you just minimize your your role in all that to the point where it just devalues you know your time and place in their life and it devalues the transformation they went through or the yeah. struggle they had and so that's interesting it was really once i kind of opened up to that I had to start redefining what success was. Certainly. You know, I, I'm struck by hearing you describe this and hearing you say it, you know, it was difficult to accept people's gratitude prior to this. Yeah. It, it reminds me of a scene from As Good As It Gets where mm-hmm. Jack Nicholson pays for all of Helen Hunt's kids' uh, health care so that he can be well and she can waitress for him. Which is sort of an insane motivation to do it, but he did it. The net result is transformative for her. She spends a long time writing like this 15-page thank you note. She tries to give it to him, and he won't read it. Right. And you can see when she when he's like, no, no thank you, no, no. And you just you watch her, and her entire face falls. And she goes, I – like he's shutting that avenue, and you use the word devaluing – He's not only de- devaluing his contribution, but he's almost deflating the entire situation. Absolutely, and he's he's minimizing the situation that has positively changed her entire life. And mm-hmm. I don't know that we think about that in our own lives. 
And the fact that you've come to that realization, the circumstances by which you did are incredibly unfortunate. Horrific. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, catastrophic. But having that realization, humbling as hell is one thing, but I, I, I can't imagine the, the wave of gratitude that almost washes over you once you accept that. It's a, it's a transformative feeling. And the other, you know, I, I, I jokingly say, you know, that, that there's been some benefits to pancreatic cancer. I don't snore anymore. Huh. So go, go, go figure well, out. Hey, that. hey, if you're um, looking for silver linings, right? Yeah. Right. I, um, despite all the digestive problems, I don't have heartburn anymore. Okay. And this, you know, a sty that was recurring in my eye. I haven't had that. And, uh, chronic itch that I used to have in my ear is gone. So, hey, thanks, pancreatic cancer. <laughs> um, that's, I, that's not a strong endorsement for no, pancreatic not, cancer, no, Patrick. I, you know, and, and it's what? a weight loss plan that works. <laughs> you know, so, uh, no, I, I, I wouldn't say that if, those are enough to go out and get yourself pancreatic cancer. If you're looking to lose that 70 pounds, that last 70 pounds. That pancreatic cancer will take care of that for you. Yeah. Um, is that, uh, you know... You redefine what success is. You redefine what's important. The the the, the relationships that you have with people uh, changes. Um, it makes you a different person. The other thing for me that's been really interesting is that I tended to self sabotage things when when things became difficult. I would often sort of either find excuses or create excuses to not necessarily do the work that was necessary and after this i can't imagine anything will be too difficult for me <laughs> no you know and right. so, so the idea of making a feature movie on a shoestring budget you know we shot one six seven years ago that we're still not done and and, and that along with other things have contributed for us not making another one and now i look at it and go <sighs> How fucking stupid was I to let those little things get in the way? Right. It was almost cowardly. Right. You know? Yeah, like you're selling you yourself short. Yeah. It, you know? And, um, you know, we, we're making a documentary kind of about some of my experiences here. But nothing seems difficult now. You know, the, the yeah. life that's kind of lining up for me is kind of the life I thought I'd have 20 years ago. And it's it kind of sucks that it took pancreatic cancer to kind of get me to... Hey, get out of your fog. Start. Yeah. You know, whatever the old the old baggage that you had, a lot of it just goes away instantly. Yeah. You know, um, the mother of my two kids and I were estranged and separated, and we were just at odds, and we've become just great friends again. Yeah. You know, and it's like pancreatic cancer has brought us, you know, back into rhythm you know and we're, yeah. we're you know we have this obviously this common bond of our two kids but there's there's been so much positive that has come out of it and all i have to do is survive to really take yeah full advantage of it you know sure and it's kind of like this you know this new office space you know when i got sick i had to cancel a bunch of my classes we had to really pare things back i had students teaching the classes and enrollment dropped, obviously. And in late August, September, we were thinking about canceling even more classes because I wasn't able to make them. 
And then a couple really weird things happened was one, I had a bunch of students that were studying with my students that I hadn't, I hadn't even met. Right. And I do an introductory class that kind of explains what I think film acting is. And it's not acting. It's just being yourself and understanding the technical aspects of filmmaking. Hmm. Um, and just really, you know, bring your vibe to it, you know, be you, you know, uh, I think any art is best when the artist or the performer is, is just genuine. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're not faking. They're not insincere. Uh, they're not necessarily putting on a character unless, you know, it's a stage player performance piece. So I, I have this sort of intro course and I wanted all of my new students to, to, to be a part of that. And then when that was happening, one of the other studios in town closed up shops, all these and it in another studio had a lot of students that were no longer had some place to go. And so some people started asking, well, can I invite these people to your intro thing? And then the old me would have said, yeah, let's just do that. But the new me was like, well, let's, let's do it down at the bug theater. Let's open it up to everybody and see what happens. And I thought we might get 10 people. Yeah. Oh, we had a, over a hundred people sign up for it. Wow. Uh, and it was a three hour kind of a Ted talk type of thing. And as that number grew from 10 to 12 to 20 to 30 to 40, um, we were at a real crossroads as to, well, if I get more students, where where are we going to go? Where are we going to have yeah. classes? Where are we going to have workshops? Because, you know, last year the, the goal was to also open up a studio in Albuquerque where they do a lot of television and film yeah. that was put on hold. And um, all these things came together. I was renting space, subletting space in this building, very small space. And the woman I was subletting from, um, I said, you know, keep an eye if any space comes available. I really can't afford it and I can't do it now. So just keep an eye on it. Yeah. And these two units came available at a very affordable rate. I did the the big seminar. I had so much interest. It was like the universe is telling me, hang your own shingle now, even though you can't devote a lot of time to it. But yeah. if you really feel like you're getting better and you're going to survive this, now's the time. Wow. And so it's been, it's been a big leap of faith, but so far it's, um, paid off and, and I'm well enough that I'm able to be, get to most of the classes that we teach, not all of them, but most of them. Yeah. And, um, given that so much of the GoFundMe money has run out and we're going to do some more effort to raise some more money that that income is really what's going to keep us going. So it's really was weird that the universe at the worst possible time, (laughs) you know, it was literally at a time when I couldn't do anything. Yeah. They're saying you need to do these things now. It's like, I can't. Yeah. And the universe was like, that's the old you talking about the can't. Right. It's like, yeah. What's can't, what's can't, you know, you, you, you couldn't get off the fucking floor. Right. A couple of months ago, yeah, right? You're, yeah, your your doctor said you're going to be dead in six months, and you're not. That's right. You know, so it's uh, can't is nothing. <laughs> it's uh, so it's been it's been really interesting to try and keep a business going. You know, even try and grow a business during this time. Yeah, and um, you know, and it, it it only stayed afloat because so many of my students really s- stepped in. But again, that goes to you know accepting that you've had a positive impact on them that they want to do this for you and then accepting their gift um yeah. you know unconditionally 
It's been very interesting in that regard. Yeah, the Emergent Filmmakers Project um, has been around in Denver since 2002, and it's primarily is a place where local filmmakers can meet and network. Yeah. We have a monthly screening the third Thursday of every month down at the Bug Theater. I've been the executive director and host for many, many years. And uh, three or four years ago, maybe longer than that, um, I realized that it couldn't survive just on my spirit and will alone. It was just killing me. And I had a lot of really ambitious plans for it. I wanted to grow it. But it was going to require bringing other people in. And that, I think, is one of the most difficult things for people. You know, whether you're growing yeah. a business, whether you're growing an organization, whether it's creative or for profit or whatever is, you know, you got to find people that you trust, people who share in general the same kind of vision that you have. And then you have to trust and enable them and allow them to take it in slightly different directions. And and um, I tried several times to find people to do that. And none of them really worked out until Eileen, Eileen Augusta yeah. joined on. And she came on board to help run Colorado Independent Women of Film, our first, well, really our second film festival that we sponsored. The first one was EF Palooza back in 2010, which was kind of a best of EFP. Yeah. And the Colorado Independent Women of Film came about because we realized that almost no women submitted to EF Palooza. Hmm. I was like, I knew a lot of women who were making films. Like, why aren't they submitting? Because it always struck me that, you know, I say this kind of jokingly that, you know, you know, a guy will take a video of himself peeing at Mile High Stadium and think it's Sundance worthy. And, <laughs> you know, women will make this masterpiece of a film. But if there's, you know, somebody's hair's out of place, they think it's no good. Yeah. You know, so it brought Eileen on to kind of spearhead, yeah. you know, creating a, a place where, you know, women filmmakers would feel comfortable um, submitting their work and... Unbeknownst to me, we inspired a lot of women to make their first film. That's great. And so Eileen became an integral part of the EFP in general, as, as well as still running the Colorado Independent Women of Film. And then we brought on Brad and Mike Henderson. We created a screening board. Alex uh, Weimer, who runs The Bug, obviously was part of that. And we built this great organization to keep the EFP going. Uh, took a lot of the responsibility off of my plate. That way I just got to kind of host and go right. and have fun. And, and then we've we've added four or five other film festivals to it. We've added an educational component, mm-hmm. a EFP Talks, which is kind of like a TED Talks, and Mike Henderson runs that. And Mike's been on this show. Yeah. So is uh, so oh, so Brad. Oh, great. Yeah. And so, you know, great people. And I have, you know... The June EFP was the day before my CAT scan, CT scan. And I kind of announced to the crowd that I was going to take some time off, that I knew I was sick. I didn't know what it was. Certainly didn't think it was pancreatic cancer. No. And Eileen and all of them, Brad and Mike and Alex, have really kept it afloat. Yeah. And it's really, I think it's really, um, one of the things that I think of as a big success for me is that I created this organization. I created this thing that with the right people became self-sustaining. Yeah. You know, it's bigger and better than it's ever been. I haven't actually been back to it since I had to take my hiatus, uh, but I'm hoping to do so in January. But it's um, 
you know, the work they're doing is really quite remarkable. And I haven't had hardly any anything to do with it for about six months. And even the six months before that, all I found really that I was doing was occasionally, um, for lack of a better word, I call it management by, <clears throat> which is, uh, if you feel like they're going astray a little bit, you just kind of go, <clears throat> and you get kind of everybody going back in the right direction. You know, what's the mission? What's, 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 right. what's the goal? What's the purpose of the emergent filmmakers project? Let's keep our eye on the prize here. Keep our eye on the prize. Right. And, and is, does this support us? Does this not, you know, it continues to draw really great crowds. We continue to get first-time filmmakers, which is probably the coolest thing. Yeah. You know, most of the people who make short films are not going to get to direct a $10 million movie. It's just the way it is. Right. Um, but, you know, to sort of paraphrase, paraphrase Michelle Schacht, who said music is too important to be left to the professionals, <laughs> I think that's true of art, especially especially true of film. And so I think one of the real values of the Emergent Filmmakers Project is we really do encourage people to go out and make a movie, tell their story, uh, to give it a try. Um, there's tremendous value in that to people, even if they're not going to become necessarily professional narrative or documentary filmmakers. But to see, and, and you forget this as a filmmaker, you forget what your first screening experience is like. You know, how nerve-wracking and amazing and humbling and thrilling it is to make something and then it's on a big screen in front of people that you don't know. Yeah. Uh, and then have people to react to it. And so that's still one of our biggest thrills is when a first-timer gets up there and, and you know, they've brought their family and their friends and yeah. relatives have flown in and you realize <laughs> this is a big fucking deal for this person. Yeah. And some people, you know, keep going and getting better and better and move on. You know, the Knicks brothers. Um, oh, holy shit. Those guys are good. Yeah. And, you know, I, I remember about six, seven years ago when I first met them, I remember saying, you know, these guys are going to be running their own TV show in five years because yeah. they were just dedicated to getting better. Yeah. They understood comedy. They understood episodic work and they just continued to get better. So that's been the real thrill of the Emergent Filmmakers Project to me. And then all these other festivals. You know, we have an animation festival. We have a experimental and art film festival. Right. We're just constantly trying to figure out, you know, what can we do to get more people to screen their work? And, um, you know, I feel, back to this gratitude thing, I feel grateful that Brad and Eileen and Mike and Alex and we have a screening board as well. Arthur Martinez is part of that. Uh, there's so many people that like from actor Martinez. Yeah. 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 Uh, so many people that are so involved and invested in it yeah. that it just, it keeps growing and it's really dynamic and I'm grateful for them. And I know that in many ways, um, all of them have come on board to help with the EFP because at some point in their life, I had a very direct positive impact on what they're doing. Yeah. Um, I know that was the case for Eileen who, you know, I found one of her movies online and encouraged her to come and screen it. And, and, uh, when she first did her first Q and a after a movie, she was, it wasn't good. You know, right. I encouraged her to keep coming and keep making movies. And same thing with, you know, Mike, I helped Mike get involved in the independent film community. And, and so they're kind of given back and, 
It's been really wonderful to see the Emergent Filmmakers Project not only stay afloat in my absence, but continue to thrive. And I know there's a lot of people that would kind of resent that it's doing well in my absence, that I'm not needed. And I'm kind of the opposite. I think it's fucking fantastic that this thing that I I feel like I really, you know, I, I didn't create it, but I feel like I gave it life and these other people are running with it in a, such a way that it's, I don't have to worry about it dying because I'm not there. That's, and, and they're every bit as passionate about it as I am. And they've taken such a burden away from me uh, so I can concentrate on getting healthy. And they kind of jokingly say, we need to keep Patrick busy. So he stops coming up with new ideas that we have to put into play. <laughs> so, but uh, there's, there'll probably be some next year as I get a little healthier, but I'm looking forward to getting back and, uh, hopefully screen something of my own soon, My maybe a teaser for my documentary or yeah. some other things that we're working on. Well, Patrick, I'll tell you, this This was an amazing show. G- gaining your insight into what you've been through and getting to, to help you tell that story to people who otherwise wouldn't hear it. I, I feel incredibly grateful, um, and I, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it enough. Well, I'm glad we could finally get together to do it. I know we've tried for a while, and it's uh, it's been mostly limitations on my schedule. So, <laughs> Believe me, I get it. So thank you so much for uh, coming down and visiting with me, and and uh, you know let me ramble on and on. But um, well, I'll tell you, grateful I'll, for it. Absolutely, Patrick. Um, I'll tell you what. Let's plan to do this sometime in 2017, where we talk more about the work. That'd be awesome. Yeah, let's. Because it sounds like you're on the road to recovery, knock on wood. I wish you continued success in that realm. And whatever I can do, if you have a GoFundMe page, we'll link to it on the site. Awesome. Um, right now, we um, we do plugs to, to close out the show. So anything you want to plug, do it now. I, I would say the Emergent Filmmakers Project here in Denver, the third Thursday of every month. It's a great event. Uh, the movies are good. It's $5. There's free beer. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that or not, but it's $5 and <laughs> there's beer there. Um, you get to meet the filmmakers, you get to network and socialize. And then the EFP talks is the last Wednesday of every month. And we really bring in an industry insider and, and then go to the bug website to look at the uh, film festival schedule. Those are really the things I would love for the local, not only the film community, but community at large. It's a, it's, it's a great entertaining night. And if you, plop down your five bucks and bring a date and you've never been to an indie film event ever you'll it's just a blast oh it's uh, killer so i would say go and do that and for fuck's uh, sake support local art yes and then the last thing i would like to say is you know when i first was diagnosed with this uh i was like i'm not going to be defined by pancreatic cancer and uh you know i'm going to you know, I, I I said to people jokingly, this fucking thing picked the wrong fucking fucker to fucking <laughs> fuck with. Uh, so that's about the best use of fuck in a, a complete sentence that I can think of. And I realized that as I'm getting better and, and the transformation that it's caused that uh, in many ways my life from here on out will be defined in large part by this pancreatic cancer. Huh. And um, I honestly believe that... Uh, one, after I overcome this, there'll be very few things that I won't be able to do. Yeah. But the other thing I, I you know, I want to reach out to people and say, don't wait till you get this diagnosis to start getting your body together. And 
don't wait for something this fucking debilitating to get your life shit in order. Yeah. You don't it you don't have to have this level of trauma before you reassess and figure out what's important to you. You can do that right now. You can you can sit down and take stock and figure out, God, why am I carrying all this baggage? Get rid of it. Put stop, it down. Yeah, stop doing what you don't want to be doing with your life. Uh, f- figure it out before a doctor tells you you have six months to live. Yeah. You know, figure it out now. You know, don't wait till you're 50. You know, 20 would be a good time. 30 would be a good time. But don't wait till you're 50, 53, and, you know, you have a tumor in you that's uh desperately trying to kill you one one of my favorite quotes is warren miller who makes you know ski movies mm-hmm. he always said if you don't do it this year you'll be one year older when you do absolutely absolutely well john i, I can't tell you how much i appreciate you coming down and and let me rant on and love to talk to you next year and and we'll talk more about the work and hopefully by then i'll have some uh, news from new mexico to report and we can talk about uh some of my actors that are already appearing in uh, TV shows and movies and some of the other work. Hell yeah, Patrick. Continued success to you. Good health coming up, and thank you. Thank you. Hell yeah, that's episode 119 of the John of All Trades podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you again, Patrick Sheridan, for sharing this with me and with all of us, all of us who are there with you, fighting in spirit. Please give Patrick some money. Go to the John of All Trades website. J-O-N of all trades.us. Find the GoFundMe link in the companion blog piece to this episode and give some money. It'll be worth it. Pay it to someone who was willing to be raw, someone who's willing to share his story for the betterment of all of us, to increase our understanding, to increase our empathy. Just go to the page, donate some money. You can find the John of All Trades podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Just search John of All Trades. We're also on the social media, J-O-A-T pod. On Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and Pinterest, our sponsor is 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. They'll be with us through 2017 as well. They're fantastic. Anything you want to do on the web, they'll help you do it better, whether it's building a website, reaching an audience, or using social media. They're the shop to you. We'll be back here next week with a fresh episode. we got great episodes lined up early in 2017. I cannot wait to bring them to you. Thank you for being a part of it. Thank you for letting me into your life. And uh, you know what? Here's to peace and love, prosperity, and goodwill for all of you in 2017. I love you so much. Thank you for letting me do this show. And until I talk to you again, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.